Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. This is the word of God. If you are God's people, I charge you to receive it as the word of God. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him, sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is the inerrant and eternal word of God for us this morning. Now here is... Here, as Luke continues to recount the final week of Christ's earthly ministry, we have the last recorded parable of Jesus Christ. At least the last parable in the Gospel of Luke, if not the last one he ever told. Now, this parable is a little bit unlike all the other parables that we've looked at this morning, uh, uh, throughout this study on Luke's Gospel. When we read... When we study the other parables, we always have to be careful not to hyper-spiritualize the parables. And what I mean by that is not every element in a parable has some deep hidden meaning. Most parables are illustrations, examples, pictures of a greater reality. And Jesus would normally tell us what the illustrations are pointing towards. For example, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. Or in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan does not represent someone else. The Good Samaritan is exactly who the parable says he is. He is nothing more than a Samaritan. But he serves as an object lesson to us in that parable to teach us the reality that we are called to love our neighbor, especially our enemies. But this parable is different. This parable, just about... Every element in it is a representation of something else. This parable is more like allegory, similar to maybe John Bunyan's A Pilgrim's Progress, where everyone and everything in the the story has an ulterior ulterior meaning. We're going to look at the ulterior meanings of all the elements of this parable in just a minute, but before we do that, we have to once again remind ourselves of the context, the setting within, this, within which this parable is told. As I mentioned, this parable is taking place within the last week of Christ's earthly ministry. He's reached 
the holy city. This happened just a few days before this event. He rode into the city on the back of a donkey as the prophet Zechariah foretold that the Messiah would do. That was the event we know as the triumphal entry. Then the next day, after the triumphal entry, Luke tells us he went into the temple and he purged it of its debauchery. We heard how he basically attacked the temple, drove out the money changers uh, and, and the vendors, and he cleansed it of its perverted, twisted worship. And then, having restored the house of God to a house of worship, he took his seat as a teacher within the temple, teaching and preaching the gospel. And as he taught, we heard last week, as he taught, the religious leaders of Israel came to him and challenged his authority. By whose authority do you do these things? They were seeking, by doing this, to publicly shame Jesus in front of the crowds, to try to discredit him. And what happened, as we heard last week, it, ultimately it was the religious leaders who were shamed and discredited. And now our text today, we are led to believe, happens immediately after Jesus shames and discredits those religious leaders. One of the reasons why we believe that's the case is because of verse 19, where Luke plainly notes that the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him in that very hour, for they perceived that he told this parable against them. So they were still there. And they heard and they understood the allegory of this parable. They, they knew right away what this parable was all about. They knew that Jesus told it as a, as a way to reprimand them. He told this parable against them. So that's the greater context within, uh, uh, in which this parable takes place. Jesus had shown his authority in the way that he rode into Jerusalem. He showed his authority in the way that he cleansed the temple. He showed his authority in the way that he began to preach and teach in the temple. He then vindicated his authority in how he dealt with the religious leaders of Israel. And now, having shown and vindicated his authority through this parable, he uses his divine authority to condemn the religious leaders of Israel. So let's... Look, let's look at first this parable. It's, it's fair, fairly straightforward. Uh, and the situation that's taking place in this parable is one that was very common in the first century. We have a tenant farming situation. So uh, in the region of Galilee in particular, it was very rich with good wine-making grapes. And so many people would come and buy land in that region, wealthy people, and then they would appoint tenants to live on the farm, live on the vineyards, and work the land. They would harvest the grapes, they would make the wine, they would even manage the operations of the vineyards. They had control, the tenants had control of the caretaking, of the management, of the, of the planting, of the sowing, of the reaping, of the harvest. And then after a time, when the vineyard had been cared for long enough, many times the landowners, the masters, would send servants to bring them back a sampling of the crops. That's what's happening here. And in this particular case, when the owner sends his servants to the tenants, three times the tenants beat the servants and send them back empty-handed. 
Now, what's remarkable in this is not so much the fact that the tenants beat the servant and sent sent him back empty-handed. Unfortunately, that was somewhat of a common situation. The tenants were not fond of the landowners. And when servants would come, they would beat the servants and send them back empty-handed. What is uncommon here is that the landowner would send three different servants to these tenants. Usually, it only took one beaten servant and one refusal to give a portion of the crops up to the landowner before he would come and deal harshly with those tenants. Here in the parable, for whatever reason, the landowner is exceedingly patient, giving the tenants opportunity time and time again to give to him what is due. And after the third servant is sent and beaten and returns with nothing, the landowner does something even more remarkable. He sends his own beloved son to the tenants. And as this parable is told, we see the inevitable happen. The tenants, instead of respecting the son, the tenants kill, they murder the son. Now, why would they do that? Well, you see, there were laws in those days which said that if the owner of a vineyard died, the tenants could make a legal claim to the property and take ownership of it if the landowner did not have a rightful heir, if the landowner did not have a son. And so when the tenants see the heir coming, the son coming, they assume that the landowner has actually died and the heir, the son, is coming to make his claim on the property. So they say to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him and we can make our claim to the land. That's why they kill the son. And now here, beloved, so that's the general parable as it's told. This is sort of the, uh, this world, uh, the, 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 the kind of uh, scenario that Jesus is referencing. But beloved, here's the symbolism of the parable. Because as I said, just about everything in the parable symbolizes a greater reality. The owner of the vineyard symbolizes God the Father. I don't think anyone would really struggle to see that truth. The religious leaders of Israel, as Jesus was telling this parable, certainly understood the owner of the vineyard to be God the Father. Now, the reason they knew it was God the Father is because they understood the symbolism of the vineyard. The vineyard represented Israel. You have to understand something. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the nation of Israel was consistently identified as a vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5 brings this out most clearly. Isaiah 5 verse 7 says, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So strong was the association of Israel with God's vineyard that the temple, which stood in the first century, the temple itself was adorned with carvings, of grapevines, and the branches and the leaves were inlaid with the finest gold. So the landowner is God the Father. The vineyard is Israel. Who then are the tenants? 
Well, who is in charge of caring for the covenant people of God? In the first century, it was the religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the lawyers, that is the experts in the law. They were to tend the vineyard. They were to care for the people of God, feed and nurture the people of God, see to it that Israel, as God's covenant people, was fruitful, that the vineyard was growing in the ways of the Lord. But we know, not only from the Gospel of Luke, really throughout the whole of the Old Testament, especially as you move into the era of the kings of Israel, and the kings were supposed to embody the perfect Israelite and be an example for the whole nation. So in a sense, the king in the Old Testament was to be the ultimate tenant of God's people. We know throughout the whole of the Old Testament, many, many times, the tenants of God's vineyard failed at this task of faithfully tending to the people of God. And God the Father, time and time again, would send his servants to the tenants, only to have those servants beaten and abused and sent back to the Father empty-handed. And so now we should probably ask, who are the servants who God sends to the tenants time and time again? And the answer is, the servants are the prophets of God. Many, many times in the Old Testament, the prophets are called the servants of the Lord. The Lord proclaims through the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 5, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me. And many, many times as these servants were sent to the kings and other leaders of the nation, they were treated shamefully, as our text says this morning. The prophet Elijah basically had to go into exile to save his life from King Ahab and his queen Jezebel. The prophet Jeremiah was thrown into a pit and left for dead. The prophet Zechariah was murdered right there in the temple. And most recently, in the life of God's people, the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, was beheaded by Herod. This is the reason why Stephen, the first recorded Christian martyr in the book of Acts, on the day when he was being stoned to death, preached a sermon to the nation of Israel. And in that sermon, he said, which one of the prophets did your forefathers not kill? Time and time again, Israel's religious leaders abused, beat, shamefully treated, and even murdered the servants, the prophets of God. And what was so remarkable about God, as we see in this parable, is His persistent patience. His servants were abused. And yet God, instead of coming and ultimately destroying the wicked tenants, He continued patiently to send more and more prophets to Israel, calling on their leaders and on the nation itself to repent and return to Him. And that pattern continued throughout the whole of the New Old Testament until John the Baptist comes and finally the Father says, I will send my beloved Son. The Son in the parable, of course, is Jesus Christ. 
And here He is now, the Son who was sent by the Father, knowing that in a few days the wicked tenants of Israel would indeed kill Him. There He is, telling them right to their faces that He knew their plan. He knew their plot. He understood their scheme. He knew the hatred that was in their hearts for Him. He knew that they would do what they would do to Him. And even still, there He is before them. In a sense, I think it's, it's very true. He is warning them and calling them to repent. And look at what Jesus says to the wicked tenants, these so-called religious leaders of Israel in verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Meaning to those who put to death the beloved son. Jesus says he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, if you were one of the religious leaders of Israel in that moment, and you had this person standing before you who claimed to be the Son of God. And he somehow knew the plot, the schemes that were in your mind to murder him. And he is there saying, if you do this, the Father will come and destroy you. What's your reaction? Well, hopefully your reaction would be to repent, receive the Son for who he is, that is not the reaction of these wicked tenants. Jesus says to them, do you think the Lord will simply ignore what you're about to do to me? He will not ignore it. Jesus is basically telling them, he has been, the Lord has been patient with you in the past, sending you time and time again the prophets to call you to repentance. But do not mistake his patience with his approval. Now that He has sent me, the only beloved Son, to you, if you continue in your schemes and murder me, He will surely come and destroy you and entrust the care of the vineyard. Meaning, entrust the care of God's covenant people to others. Now, of course, God would do that, right? In the immediate context, God would take away the care of the vineyard the care of the people of God from the Pharisees and scribes and priests and elders and entrust it to others, entrust it to the apostles. And even, in the minds of the religious leaders of Israel, God forbid, even entrust it to Gentile elders. And God would indeed come and destroy those wicked tenants through the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when Emperor Titus would come and conquer and destroy the city and tear down the temple brick by brick. But even more than that, we know the destruction would not just be in that immediate context. We know that, that Jesus is also speaking of a day that was yet far off. The day of the Lord when He Himself would return and condemn forever those wicked tenants. But what is interesting, and I think it's very concerning... What is very interesting and concerning here is how these religious leaders respond to Christ's warning of coming judgment. They do not repent. They harden their hearts more and they say, surely not. Now why do they say, surely not? Because 
in their minds, it was beyond their comprehension to believe that the Lord would allow the vineyard to ever be taken away from them and entrusted to others, especially Gentiles. And it was beyond their comprehension to ever think that God would come and destroy them. They could not get their minds around that thought. And so what's so concerning about their reply here is that they themselves were more concerned in that moment with their own position within the religious structure of Israel than they were with heeding the words of Jesus Christ, repenting of their rejection of Him and turning to Him as the Messiah. They were more concerned with their status than their salvation. And Jesus hears their reply. They say, surely not. That will never happen. God's never going to take the vineyard from us. He's not going to come and destroy us. And Jesus says, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Understand what Jesus is saying, beloved. He's quoting from Psalm 118, which is interesting, isn't it? Because what is the psalm that the people sang as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey? They sang Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is quoting the, the, the preceding passages to that verse that the crowd sang. And those verses in Psalm 118, it is said, refers to an incident when Solomon's temple, the first temple, was being built. When they were building the first temple, great stones were being cut and shipped into Israel for the building of the temple. And every stone had a specific place where it was to, be, uh, where it was to fit in the building of the temple. One stone was cut far too big to fit into the spot to which it was to go. And so that stone was rejected by the temple builders. But when the temple was nearly complete, the builders needed a capstone to finish off the entire structure and hold the temple together. And guess which stone became the capstone, the cornerstone? It was the stone which was cut too big. The stone which the builders rejected became the cornerstone, the capstone which completed and held the entire structure of Solomon's temple together. And now Jesus is saying, He is that stone. And while the wicked tenants rejected the stone, they rejected Christ when they rejected the prophets all throughout the Old Testament. And now that Jesus was right there before them, they were continuing to reject him. While they have rejected that stone, it is he who is the cornerstone, the capstone, which holds his entire vineyard, the entire covenant people of God together. It was not the wicked tenants. It was he himself upon which the covenant people of God was built. And he says, everyone who falls on him, everyone who stumbles over him, who trips over him because they refuse to see him as the cornerstone, they reject him, they will be broken to pieces and crushed by him. 
He was declaring condemnation on those wicked tenants, beloved. And clearly, as we said already, verse 19, those religious leaders understood exactly what Jesus was telling them in this parable. The allegory was obvious to them. But instead of repenting, they sought to lay hands on him in that very hour. And once again, out of fear of the people, they cowered. And they do not go through with their plans yet. So listen, beloved. As I read this passage, there are at least two points of application for us today. Two points that we can draw from this parable to seriously consider. And the first application is specifically for the vineyard, the covenant people of God today, the church. Now, I'm not speaking of this church specifically, but I'm speaking of the church universal here, the Holy Catholic Church. And it has to do with how the wicked tenants, the religious leaders of Israel, consistently mistreated, abused, beat the servants of God, which were sent to them time and time again. There is a modern equivalent to Israel shamefully treating the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, there's at least two. And as I'm preaching this, I'm thinking of a second equivalent, and I'll give that one to you first. When so-called churches reject the Bible, the Word of God, as inerrant, infallible, as truly inspired by the Spirit, what are they doing? They are rejecting not only the servants, but they are rejecting the beloved Son. But there's another modern application. There's a modern equivalent here. And that equivalent is how many, many congregations today shamefully treat the ministers of God. Now understand, ministers of the gospel are not, uh, uh, in the New Covenant era, are not prophets. But just as it was the role of the prophet in the Old Testament Testament to bring God's word to God's people, so too is it the role of pastors today to bring God's word to God's people. This is why the Puritans constantly referred to preaching as prophecy. They didn't mean that preachers are receiving new divine revelation from God as the prophets in the Old Testament did. They simply meant that the role of the preacher is to bring the word of God to the people of God. And that as we do that work, there is something supernatural involved as the Holy Spirit works through the ministry of the word. And there are many, many churches, and there have been, really, for nearly 2,000 years, beloved, who consistently, as a pattern, mistreat the servants of God and cast them out of their midst. It's extremely common in churches, especially those which function under congregationalist church government, but it can really, it can happen anywhere. Now, there are times when there are bad pastors, just as there are false prophets, There are men today who have no business being pastors. Those men should be cast out. But when there's a consistent pattern of faithful pastors being chewed up and spit out of churches, beloved, understand, that is indicative of the fact that there is probably wicked tenants overseeing that particular portion of God's vineyard. Either a small group of members who think they are the ones who run the church, or a couple of elders who are unqualified and who will treat every pastor with scorn and contempt. Whatever the case is, if a church eats up pastors, 
it most times is not a problem with the pastor. So we have to be careful as a Christian church. We have to carefully consider how the servants of the Lord are being treated. When faithful gospel ministers are in the midst of a local church body, are they being shown the honor that is due to them as 1 Timothy 5.17 requires? Or are they, as verse 12 of our text today says, are they being wounded and cast out? If the latter is true of a church, a church needs to repent and seek to drive out the wicked tenants who would lead the congregations into such rebellion against God. That's the first application for the church in our age today. The second point of application is much more broader in scope. It's not merely for the church, it's for all humanity. And it, it comes from asking this question. What are you going to do with the stone that the builders rejected? What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? There are only two answers to that question. And the first answer is to continue in your hardness of hearts. You've heard who he is. You have heard his messengers, the evangelists, the pastors, the preachers, the teachers. You have heard his own words right here in the pages of sacred scripture. And yet many continue to reject him. And while the Lord has been patient with you, sending you time and time again more and more servants, let me say this again. Maybe you didn't catch it the first time I said it. Do not confuse His patience with you. Do not confuse it with His approval of you. The Lord was patient in the days of Noah too until He wasn't and sent the flood. You must understand, you too can today reject and kill the Son. Alistair Begg put it this way. He said, every time you react and say, I will not have Christ, you put your own personal nail in that which held Him to the cross. My friends, if your answer to this question of what will we do with the stone who was rejected. If your answer to that question is, I will continue to reject him, I will murder the beloved son, I encourage you again to read verse 18 of our text this morning. The second answer to this question is to say, I will not reject the son. I will hear the servants of the Lord. I will hear the Son Himself. I will repent of my sin. Place my faith. That means to place, not only believe, but to place my hope and my trust in Him as the beloved Son of the Father, as the Savior of sinners, as the Son who was put to death so that my sin could be atoned for. I will put my faith in the risen Son of God. If that is your answer, then praise God. If that is your answer, have confidence, beloved, in knowing that you are now part of the living temple, the vineyard of God over whom is the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ Himself. You are His dwelling place. You see, here's what those wicked tenants missed in the parable. They thought they could inherit the vineyard by rejecting and killing the heir, the beloved son. The reality is, is that it's through receiving the heir, receiving the beloved Son by faith, which actually makes you a fellow heir with Christ. 
Do you want the inheritance of the Father which belongs to the Son? Then you receive the Son. You don't kill Him to make a claim on God's kingdom. You receive Him. And in doing so, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verse 17, you become a co-heir with Christ. That's how you become an heir of the vineyard. Receive Christ by faith. Let Him no longer be a stumbling stone to you, but rather make Him your cornerstone and have the assurance that God Himself gives us in the words of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah 28, verse 16, the Lord says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. 